Hey, you guys can grab a seat. If you have your Bibles, feel free to open them up to 2 Samuel chapter 12. That's where we're going to be hanging out tonight is in 2 Samuel chapter 12 as we continue in this series that we're calling Hello, My Shame Is. So if this is your first time with us, don't worry, because I'm about to give you a 60-second recap of what we talked about in the first two weeks. All right, you ready? So week one was an overview, and we gave this kind of definition or understanding of shame. And what shame is, is focusing on the gap between who you are and who you should be, right? So if you know you are here and you should be here, when we focus on that gap in whatever area of your life, you have shame. And so we ended that night talking about this idea that shame is not overcome by perfection. Instead, it's overcome by perspective. And so what we've been doing is figuring out what that perspective is. And so last week, we focused on sin. Each week, we're focusing on one word. And so last week was sin. And we looked at Luke chapter 7, where this woman who has lived this sinful life comes to Jesus, and he says that she's been forgiven. And so what we saw in that story is how we're not labeled by our actions. Instead, we're labeled by his action, Jesus' action, right? That's who we are. Our label isn't based upon what we've done. Instead, it's based upon what Jesus has done at the cross. So that's kind of a recap of what we've been doing the last two weeks. And so today, the word that we're gonna focus on is repentance. Right, repentance is a word that we've heard all throughout our lives in church. But if we're honest with ourselves, we're not really a big fan of doing it. We don't really think very good thoughts about the idea of repentance. And so we'll talk about that or why that is a little bit later. But anyway, that's what we're gonna be talking about tonight is repentance, but we're gonna be in 2 Samuel chapter 12, as we talk about that today. So when I was in college, I dated a girl who was a cheerleader. And she wasn't the typical cheerleader that you see who, who just does cheerleading on the sidelines for basketball game and football games. Instead, she was a competition cheerleader. And if you are not familiar with competition cheerleading, let me tell you, you are missing out. Because this thing is a whole nother level of big deal. I mean, this thing is huge. In fact, if you have done any type of competition cheerleading in your life, respect to you. And I tip my hat to you very easily because this is a intense, intense, you know, field, sport, whatever you want to call it. I mean, this is, this is very, very intense. And so if you're not familiar with it, this is what takes place when they have these different cheerleading competitions, right? So these different squads come together and they compete in this one place. And what they do is one after one is they get on the stage or they get on the floor and they compete against one another by doing these routines, and these routines have this music that is specifically generated for these different squads. And the best way I can describe the music is it's two and a half minutes of every possible hit in every genre mixed with cartoon sound effects, right? I mean, that's kind of, again, that's just the best way I can describe it. And so they go out, and it is so impressive when they do these routines, I mean, they spend hours and hours doing this, and it is just crazy what's happening on that floor, right? They have, like, dance sequences that are going on, right? Girls are just running and just tumbling all across the stage. I mean, bodies are just getting thrown up in the air all over the place. I mean, it is insane. It is so impressive and crazy insane. And so one by one, they do these different competitions or, excuse me, they do these different routines, and at the very end, after everybody has gone, they come together, and so these judges who have been critiquing these different routines with all these different criteria come together and they announce a winner. So everybody comes together in a room, they announce the winner, they celebrate if they've won. If not, everybody goes home and cries. Um, well, you know, they're disappointed and stuff like that. But it's a big deal, right? So when I dated this girl who was this competition cheerleader, I went to a bunch of these things. 
all the time. Most Saturdays I was spent hanging out with her. We were going to these competitions and I would ride with her family. We would go and everything like that. Well, there was one competition that as it was going on, something terrible happened. Because as my girlfriend's squad is about to get up and to do their routine, the coach realizes that there's a rule that she's overlooked. A rule that says that nobody who's a member of the squad or anybody who's a coach can press the play button to start the music. I mean, this is like a football team not having a football, right? And I tell you, when this happened, the room went into a panic. I mean, neighbor was whispering to neighbor, what are they going to do? What is going to happen? Who is going to step up and save the day? And as this chaos was filling this auditorium, all of a sudden from the crowd rose a hero. (laughs) A knight. Some might say a dashing young fellow whose (laughs) girlfriend just happened to be on the squad. And the crowd erupted in applause as he stood to his feet and said, I will tribute. (laughs) I will volunteer as tribute. A little less dramatic, you guys get the idea. So the coach comes to me and is like, hey, do you mind pressing this button? I'm like, yeah, sure. So I go over there and they get, <laughs> and they get ready to go and I press play and did my job. And so they do this routine and guess what? They won. That was, yes, true. The moral of the story is you can be a hero too. Now, um, but... <laughs> And so they win the competition, and so, like, I mean, they're freaking out, and you better believe I'm taking all the credit for the win, right? I mean, I'm just talking about how I'm the one who was the X Factor, right? I was the 12th man who came on the field and scored the touchdown in the 12th quarter, or in the 12th quarter, fourth quarter, yeah. Yeah, I do, I, I did play football. You don't have to believe me, that's fine. And so, and so I'm just, I mean, I'm just milking this thing for all it's worth. And so we're driving home and I'm talking about it with our family. And if there's one thing that you need to know about me is I am great at wearing out a joke. Like I'm really good at that. And so I just keep going on and on. So I'm sure it was comical at first and she probably just put up with it because she liked me and that's what you do in relationships. And so I'm just milking this thing. So we end up getting back to her house. We're hanging out in her kitchen. Her mom's there. And I'm actually really close with her mom because I had this strategy when I dated girls that was flawless. Um, what it was is in order to get in with the family, I knew the mom was the key, right? I knew the dad didn't like me because I was a guy. And so what I would do is I would get in with this mom and have this really good relationship with her. And then she would get the dad to like me, right? She would do that kind of convincing aspect. And so I knew that I could get into the family by being close with the mom. So I was pretty close with the mom. And so we're hanging out in her kitchen and I'm just, again, I'm just milking this thing. And I make one more comment about how I'm the reason that they won that competition. And out of nowhere, her mom turns to me and says, Jesse, all you did was press a button. You did nothing for them to win that competition. Let it go. (laughs) And so of course I'm like, yes, ma'am. Right, I mean, like, like, what do you do in that situation? I mean, she just straight up called me out. And after kind of the dust settled and I picked my job off the floor, it was one of those things where I was just like, I can't believe that just happened. Like, like, I can't believe that she just did that. I mean, I never had a mom of a girl I dated ever do that, right? And when you're trying to get on their good side, that's not the type of direction that you want to go. And so in that moment, she laid into me and she was very 
very eager to tell me how she felt about me taking credit for that win. And what's crazy is all these years later, this has been over a decade since this happened, but the reason it still stands out in my mind is because no one likes getting called out. I mean, that's how we operate, right? Nobody likes getting called out. Nobody likes being told that they're in the wrong. No one likes being told that they need to stop what they're doing, right? Nobody likes to get called out and laid into and yelled at by anybody, especially your girlfriend's mom. And so the reason after all these years this still stands out in my mind is because, again, no one likes getting called out. And what we see, this idea of us getting called out and us not liking it is just as true today as it was 3,000 years ago. 3,000 years ago when King David was reigning over Israel. And we see leading up to our passage that David did some pretty messed up things that he definitely needed to be called out for. In fact, what we see is he slept with his neighbor's wife. He gets her knocked up. And then he tries to cover what he's done. And then when he can't cover his tracks, what he does is he sets up this plan so that this guy Uriah will go out to battle and that he will get killed because as he steps forward, everybody else is going to step back. And then to top this all off, after he gets this guy killed, he decides to turn around and marry this girl Bathsheba. And so David has done some pretty messed up things. And as he's sitting back, feeling like he just cheated on a final and got away with it, this guy named Nathan decides to pay David a visit. You see, Nathan was a prophet in Israel, and so he was basically the voice of reason. And so what would happen is that God would speak through Nathan with these different people who needed some guidance or needed some correction, like our boy David here, and Nathan would come and speak to them to what God wanted him to say. And so God gives Nathan this fun task of telling David how God feels about what he's done. And Nathan's not an idiot. He knows that David is king and he has the power to kill people. And based upon what just happened, that's not above his moral character. And so he decides to do something ingenious and sly. And what he decides to do is to tell a story to help David come to this realization of what he's done. And so he walks up to David and starts to tell him a story about two guys and a lamb. So that's what we pick up on 2 Samuel chapter 12, beginning with verse 1. And this is what we read together. It says, The Lord sent Nathan to David. When he came to him, he said, There were two men in a certain town, one rich, the other poor. The rich man had a very large number of sheep and cattle, but the poor man had nothing except one little ewe lamb he had bought. He says, He raised it, and he grew it up with him and his children. And he shared his food and drank his cup and even slept in his arms. It was like a daughter to him. And so basically what's happening is that this is this guy's pet. Because that's exactly what we do when we have pets, right? We raise them. They sleep with us. They eat from our food, right? They're like children to us, right? And and I never even understood this until a few years ago when we got a dog, right? And I've never been a dog person. I was that guy who when I petted a dog, you could tell I didn't have one because it was like really awkward, And so we decided to get a pet because my wife loves them. And so we get this dog, and it was amazing how much I just, like, love this dog. Like, I was just overwhelmed with it, right? Like, we would just be hanging out together, me and my wife, and be like, hey, isn't our dog awesome? Man, so cute. Right? I just love him. Maybe did you see when he's chasing his tail? That was so funny. 
right? And then you like showing you like pictures of people of your dog and they're like, look, I, dude, I just wanna know what time it was, right? But like you're wanting them to see how amazing your dog is, how like how beautiful it is as if you had anything to do with that, right? And what happens is our pets become our family, don't they? Because when you have a kid, you do the same thing. It's just less weird. And so, and so what we see happening here is that this pet is like family, right? This pet is a part of these people's family. And when we understand this idea that pets are family, and this is the same for these guys today, it makes what happens next absolutely horrifying. Because look at what it says in verse four. It says, now a traveler came to the rich man, but the rich man refrained from taking one of his own sheep or cattle to prepare a meal for the traveler who would come to him. Instead, he took the ewe lamb that belonged to the poor man and prepared it for the one who had come to him. Clearly, this rich man does not have a soul, right? Like, this is horrible. I mean, imagine your neighbor coming to you and taking your dog and saying, yeah, I'll, he's not going to be back. I'm going to go prepare this as a dinner for some guests that are coming. I mean, that is awful. I mean, imagine how you would feel in that situation if somebody came and took your dog so that they could feed somebody dinner. I mean, you would be outraged, right? I mean, you'd be out for blood. I mean, you would hope something awful happened to this person and you'd be okay if you're the one that did it, right? And you see, that's exactly how David feels. And when David hears this, he is absolutely furious. In fact, look what it says in verse five. It says, David burned with anger against the man and said to Nathan, as surely as the Lord lives, the one who did this must die. He must pay for that lamb four times over because he did such a thing and had no pity. So in this moment, what David is doing is realizing that what this guy has done is inexcusable and is horrible. And he knows that justice must be served. This guy must be punished because of what he's done. And so if you're Nathan, you're sitting there and you've realized that you have David exactly where you want him. You realize that your story has done the perfect job of setting David up to realize that he has done something they shouldn't have. And he is finally looking at this situation objectively. And so as David's just sitting there, just burning with anger, we see that Nathan shows up and he just lowers the boom because he looks at David and says, bro, this is you, right? That's what we see in chapter 12, verse seven. It says, and Nathan said to David, you are the man. Like, this is you. You're the one who stole that lamb and killed it from that poor guy. And so what he does is he continues after this to talk about how David is that guy. To explain the horrible thing that David did. To tell him how God feels about his situation and now the different consequences that are going to take place in his life because of this. So I want us to take back or take a second to just think what kind of moment this is for David. Because if you think about it, this is a very unusual moment in the life of David because usually all throughout the Bible, David is the good guy, isn't he? Right? He's the guy who's handpicked by God to rule over his people Israel. Right? He's the guy who single-handedly won a battle because he got a slingshot and knocked out a giant. 
And we see even just a few chapters earlier through the mouth of Nathan, David is the God that God says, I'm going to establish your kingdom and there's going to be a descendant who reigns on your throne forever. And so throughout David's life, he was the hero. But in this situation, David is anything but a hero. And he's the villain. He's the villain who steals somebody's wife and then kills the guy and marries the girl. Right? That's who David is in this situation. And after Nathan tells this story and he drops this bomb telling David that he's the guy, for the first time, David finally realizes how far he's fallen off the pedestal. So when I see this story, I can't help but wonder, if I was David, how would I respond? Right? If I was David, how would I respond if someone like Nathan came and called me out? And they visited me, and I finally realized, based upon what they said, the weight of what I'd done. And it really sunk in what my actions actually caused. If I had to guess, I would probably respond to that situation similar to the way that I responded when my girlfriend's mom called me out. But see, in that moment, when my girlfriend's mom called me out, I was instantly covered in guilt. Man, I felt so guilty because of what I did. Man, I was just so embarrassed that I had taken credit for this competition. I felt so stupid that I had taken this joke so far to the point that she felt like she had to yell at me to get me to stop. And when you're trying to impress your girlfriend's mom, right, when somebody lashes out with you, when she does, you, man, you take that so personally, don't you? Because I felt like by her calling me out, it was a reflection of who I was. Right, that I was that guy who likes to take credit for things that he hasn't done. Right, that I was that guy who doesn't know how to stop when he's ahead and he tears a joke too far. So it was so personal. I mean, it was such like an attack on me when she said that, even though she didn't mean it like that. And so I just shut down. And when that thing happened, I was like, whoosh. I mean, I just shut down. I didn't want to talk to her. I was done impressing her, right? Like I just emotionally shut down because I felt so much shame. Because in that moment, when I left that place that night, I was focusing on the gap between who I was and who I should be. And so I just felt this guilt in my life. And see, the reason I felt guilt in that moment is because guilt is the natural response to when our gap is exposed. See, guilt is the natural response to when our gap is exposed. And so when we do something that exposes our gap, man, we just feel guilt about it. And I think the reason we do this is so important. The reason we experience gap and the reason it's such a natural response to us, what our guilt is, is because we often live under this guilt mindset. Let me explain what this is. And often without realizing it, we have this idea that our default setting as people, right? Our default setting as an individual is flawless, right? So that's our default setting. That's where we should be at all the times of our life, right? No matter what we're doing, if we're at school, if we're in a relationship, right? If we're at home, we have this default setting that we should be flawless, right? People shouldn't be able to see the mistakes in our life, right? That's, that's our setting. That's our default setting that we take, But see, when something happens in our lives and our flaws are exposed, 
right? When your girlfriend's mom calls you out, what happens is we realize that we're flawed, right? We realize that we're not at this level that we should be. We realize instead that we're down here. And although we're down here and we wish we were up here, we feel this guilt. Because if shame is focusing on the gap between who we are and who we should be, guilt is the fact that there's a gap at all, right? If the standard is here and we are here and there's a gap, then we feel guilty about that. We feel embarrassed about that, right? So that's why when we get called out for something, we just, we, sh- we shut down, right? Or we make excuses. Or we act like it's not a big deal, but we know that it is, right? We're just covered in this guilt in our lives. Because there's a gap. And it's being exposed. All right, so that's what this guilt mindset says. The guilt mindset says that we are flawless, and then whenever we find ourselves getting shorter of that and we see that gap, we feel guilt. And we see this is true for so many areas of our life. But let me tell you where this is especially true. In your Christian life. This is especially true in your Christian life because if our default setting is flawless, then that means our default setting as a Christian is that we're called to be a flawless Christian. We're called to have no sin in our life. That's just the standard, right? That's just the setting. We're called to have no sin at all in our life. But then when things happen and we find ourselves like David, doing things that we know are wrong, doing things that we shouldn't have, but we got caught up in the moment or something happened or whatever took place and we find ourselves sitting there and we see that we should be here and instead we're here, we are covered in guilt. When we fall short, we find ourselves thinking, man, what in the world is wrong with me? Right, or we fall short and we say, man, how could I be so stupid? Or we fall short and we say, how can I even really be a Christian if I'm still doing this? Because in that moment, we should be here. And instead, we're here. And so guilt consumes us. We feel embarrassed. We feel shameful because of what we've done. And because we have this guilt mindset... We find that the natural response when our gap is exposed is to feel guilt. And see, guys, this is why repentance is something that we hate. And this is why repentance is so shameful for us. Because repentance is admitting that there's a gap, right? Repentance is admitting that we're guilty, that we're not living up to this flawless standard, that we're not where we should be. And so now we have to wave our hands in the air and say, look, God, I'm not there. I'm not where I should be. I'm sorry. And we feel this shame in our lives. And we have to come to God and repent. We have to ask for forgiveness. We have to go to God and admit we've done something wrong. We feel like we're taking this step towards sinfulness and we're just exposing this gap even more in our life. And so if we're honest with ourselves, repentance is shameful. We don't want to do it. Because we're just admitting and highlighting this idea that we're not flawless. But the beauty of what we see in this passage, guys, is that that doesn't have to be the way that we live. And that doesn't have to be the mindset that we have. Because although we might operate under this guilt mindset, we see David has a different one. And even though I know how I would have responded in that situation, we see David responds a lot differently. Because right after he gets caught out by Nathan, we see David responds with these words. He says, then David said to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. 
Man, it's amazing to me with just how quickly he was willing to say something. He didn't shut down. He didn't make excuses, right? He didn't try to pretend like something else happened. Instead, he admits he has sinned against God. And see, what's happening right here is David is repenting. Now, we get one verse here that tells us how David thought and what he was going through. But what's really cool is that Psalm 51 is actually David repenting of what's taking place here. So all of Psalm 51 is David responding to what's taking place and Nathan calling him out. And so when we look at Psalm 51, we see more of the kind of mindset that David has in the midst of the situation. And look what it says in Psalm 51, beginning with verse 3. David is praying to God, right? He's writing this psalm. He says, for I know my transgressions and my sin is always before me. He says, against you, you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. So you are right in your verdict and justified when you judge. And listen to what David says here. This is huge. This is so big for us to understand what kind of mindset that David has. He says in verse 5, he says, Surely I was sinful at birth, sinful from the time my mother conceived me. Right? Notice what's happening in this moment. David does not have a default setting that says he's flawless. Verse 5 is showing us that, isn't it? Instead, the default setting of David's life is broken. That's his default setting. His default setting is, I have sinned since birth. That my sin is always before me. And that I was conceived in it. See, David understands that he's not flawless. He understands that he's broken. You see, when you're broken, you understand this idea that sin is inevitable. I mean, sin is going to be a part of your life, right? We fight against it. We wage war against it, right? But at the end of the day, sin is always going to be a part of our life. And what that means is there are going to be times in our life that we fall into it. There are going to be times in our life that we give into that sin. And so what that means is that repentance isn't shameful. Because we're broken, repentance is expected. It's expected in our life. And repentance is our way of saying, God, I need you to fix me because I am broken, because I don't have all of this together, because on my own, I can't be flawless. On my own, I can't do any of this. And so repentance isn't shameful. Instead, repentance is going to God and saying, look, God, I need your help because I'm broken and I need you to fix me. And David gets this. In fact, if you look at Psalm 51, David talks about this, right? He tells God, give me a clean heart, right? Renew a right spirit within me. Why? Because I don't have it. Because I can't do that. I am broken and I need you to fix me. See, that's the conviction mindset. And so David has this time of repentance in Samuel chapter 12. And after he repents, Samuel says these absolutely amazing words over David. Because he says to him, verse 13, says, Nathan replied, the Lord has taken away your sin. You're not gonna die. And what I love about this verse is that the same words that Nathan speaks over David are the same words that this cross speaks over us. Because if there's ever a debate of what our default setting is, the cross makes it clear, right? 
Because the cross says that we're broken, right? That's the whole point of it, right? The cross says that we are broken, and because of that, we deserve spiritual death. And then what we see happening is that God decides to step into human history and to do something about our broken condition. He decides to live the flawless life that we could never even think about living on our own. And because of that, he can take our sin and our shame upon himself and die in our place so that our guilt could be removed. So that we would no longer be guilty of our sin, which means we no longer have to feel guilt in our life. And that's the beauty of the cross, right? Jesus doesn't come because we're flawless. Jesus comes because we're broken. And because he removes our guilt, we no longer have to experience. In fact, I love what Louis Giglio said at Passion last year. He said, if you're still dealing with guilt as a Christian, that's your fault. All right, that's what he said. If you're still dealing with the guilt as a Christian, that's your fault. And what it has shown is that you've taken your eyes off the cross. And he's exactly right. Because as Christians, our guilt has been removed. Right? Our sin has been paid for. So therefore, we don't have to experience guilt anymore in our life. Instead, in our life, we can understand what God has done. And so what that means is as Christians, our banner over our life doesn't say you're guilty. Instead, the banner over our life says, the Lord has forgiven your sins. You will not die. And so the implications of this are absolutely huge in our life. Because what this means is that repentance isn't a step towards sinfulness. It means that repentance is a step towards godliness. And as Christians, we should expect to do it in our lives because we need God's help to look more like Jesus. And because of what Jesus has done on the cross, right, we don't have to experience shame. And we can remember what God has done. So that's what we see from this, right? That's what this, this passage teaches us is this idea is that repentance isn't a step towards sinfulness, it's a step towards godliness, and so what that means is that repentance isn't shameful because it's not saying that, we're, that we should be flawed and we're not. Instead, what repentance is humbly saying is that we're broken and we need to be fixed. And so that's why we do it. Because we understand the cross and what God has done for us. And whenever we forget that we're broken, it's because we have forgotten the cross. And so if we're supposed to expect repentance as Christian, then here is a good understanding of what repentance is, right? As we wrap up, here's a good understanding of what repentance is in our life, and it's that repentance is regret realized. Right? That's how we understand it, is that repentance is regret realized, because if you think about that, this is what happens in our story. When Nathan tells this story, David's regret is realized, meaning it becomes real to him. He realizes the weight of what he's done. He realizes the actions that he had taken place. And because of that, he has regret. And so repentance is regret realized. It's when our regret becomes real. And what's great about this is when we understand that our regret is real, then we do something about that, right? And that's what David does. He writes this psalm confessing to God and asking God to change him. And so when our regret becomes real, that's what we do too. We ask that person for forgiveness. We put up barriers in our lives so we don't go towards that sin anymore or we change how we're doing something and we start doing something different. Or we do something in our life when our regret is realized. 
And so that's what repentance is. Repentance is regret realized. And so let's be like David, right? When we realize what we've done, let's do something about it and realize that we are broken and we need to be fixed. And let's throw out this, this horrible guilt mentality, right? The idea that we're supposed to be flawless is an attack of the enemy that has creeped into our Christian subculture and that brings guilt and shame into our life. I mean, 1 John chapter 1 and 1 John chapter 2 destroys the idea of perfectionism in this world. John says, I write these things to you so you, you do not sin, but if you do, please know that you have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. He was not only the propitiation for our sins, the wrapping for our sins, but also for the sins of the whole world. And so that's our mindset. So this is how we respond. We respond by changing our perspective because perspective is what overcomes shame in our lives. And so the perspective that we have is that we want a conviction mindset. When a guilt mindset says, this is who you are, right? A guilt mindset says you have fallen short and now this is what defines you. But see, a conviction mindset says something totally different. It says, this isn't who you are, right? That was taking care of at the cross. And said, this is just what you've done. And as we talked about last week, since we're not labeled by our actions, but we're labeled by his action, then we can easily confess that to God and pray to him and move on with our lives. And we don't have to be ashamed of that. So have a conviction mindset and realize that you're broken. But by God's grace, you can overcome sin in your life. Let's pray. Father God, thank you for tonight. Thank you for this amazing truth that we see from David's story. This amazing truth that teaches us this amazing reality that God, we are broken. And because we're not flawless, right? We need a savior. We need a redeemer, Jesus. And you're the one who provides that for us. Because of the cross, we don't have to shamefully avoid repenting in our life. Instead, we can realize that it's expected and it's a step towards godliness. And through our repentance, we can look more like Jesus. And through our repentance, you can fix us, Lord. And through our repentance, may we be reminded that our guilt and our shame do not define us, but the cross does. And so God, may we have the conviction mindset, a mindset that recognizes that we're broken, And when we get convicted by the Holy Spirit, we choose to come to you, not run away from you. So God, may we sing to you right now, Lord, as as broken vessels who are desperately in need of your amazing grace, may we sing to you now and may we worship you as a God who has chosen to put a banner over our lives that says you are forgiven and you will not die. And in Jesus' name I pray, amen.